Guys, I'm excited about one of the new sponsors of the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Canyon Coolers is based right here in Arizona and makes premium roto-molded ice chests that work. The Outfitter Series coolers are made with near-vertical exterior walls to fit snugly into tightly packed hunting rigs without a lot of wasted space. They come at a fraction of the cost of some of the big-name brands. Canyon Coolers is a small operation. If you have a question... If you have a problem, you can pick up the phone and talk to a human being, not an answering service. Canyon Coolers offers the industry's only Vortex-like warranty, which is completely no-fault, no-hassle warranty for as long as you own the cooler. How can you beat that? It's literally the last ice chest you'll ever need to buy. Just for the J. Scott Outdoors podcast listeners, you save 10%. All you got to do is go to canyoncoolers.com and enter the J. Scott promo code at checkout, and you're going to get a 10% discount. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a longtime friend of mine and the podcast, Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources on the line. Chris, how are you doing? I am doing well. How are you doing now that you're back in the lower 48? You know, um, it took me a day or two, to be honest, um, getting back from uh, the Northwest Territories. Um, I was pretty dang sleepy when I got back. I actually, uh, three days in a row, took a couple-hour nap during the middle of the day, and I, I, uh, I seem to feel pretty fresh today, a lot fresher than I did. Um, you know, it was an awesome hunt. I had an incredible experience. I did not find a sheep to harvest. Uh, did not, one, find... At Arctic Red, they like to find uh, they like to harvest ten year old plus rams. That's kind of the benchmark that they set, and um, that's number one. And number two is, I wanted to find you know a big old you know kind of flaring you know awesome ram, and and I didn't find either of those. I had a great time, incredible guide. Uh, my guide was fifty nine years old, Chris, and I could barely keep him in sight. Um, his name's Al Clausen. He's been on 140 sheep harvests. He's killed 22 doll sheep himself. He's killed three stone sheep. He lives in the Yukon like just a sheep nut. He's got sheep, two sheep, doll sheep tattoos, you know, like he's really, really into it. And so it was, was awesome to hunt with him, um, get to see how he does things. But the, the thing that really, you know, I guess impressed me about the whole thing was his drive. You know, I mean, he was just, he would see a point like, let's go look off of that. Let's go look off of that. And I know when people elk hunt with me or cooster hunt, I'm sure they kind of feel the same way. Um, and not having seen enough doll sheep, you know, rams, I probably didn't have the fire that he obviously has. But um, it, it was awesome. It was an awesome hunt. Um, I would have loved to have found a, you know, a big ram to shoot, but we didn't. And um, the, the good news is I have a... Another hunt coming up. I leave uh, August 18th for the Chugach in Alaska. So have a little bit of time for uh, preparation and and uh, get to get back after it. Hopefully, hopefully, um, I can get a big dull sheep under my belt. Yeah, now on the Chugach hunt, it, I, I listened to your other podcasts where you were talking to all the, all the other sheep nuts. And, and um, is the Chugach hunt going to be kind of the same style of hunt as in, you know, long ways in, really isolated, just vertical climbs. I mean, I'm, I obviously, 
you're yeah. dealing with an animal that lives on big mountains. So there's going to be a lot of climbing. But like you, like I heard you say, is um, you know some of them you're just you're going straight up, straight down. Or is this or is this yeah. big catch one I mean, more from, extended? Yeah, from what people have told me, like which actually kind of overwhelmed me and a bit, you know, frightened me a, a bit. Just being honest, like. A lot of guys said, oh, yeah, the NWT will just be a nice little warm-up for your Chugach hunt. You know, the Chugach <laughs> is one of the, you know, the gnarliest places on earth. And, you know, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, listening to it and, you know, never having been to the Chugach but just hearing stories and then going to the NWT and, you know, we covered over 65 miles. And for me, it was the most physical hunt day in and day out that I have been on. And so to hear that the NWT is, you know, supposed to be, you know, just a warm-up, um, you know, I was talking to Dar on the phone this morning. And he's going with me on the Chugach. He's like, I'm frightened. He's like, if they're saying the Chugach is, you know, a whole step above, um, and not like frightened from a standpoint like, oh, I'm, you know, not going to be able to do it. Just, you know, it was pretty physical um a lot of just real steep vertical climbs a lot of boulder fields um a lot of boulder fields that we had to climb that were wet you know and every every step is slick and slippery and you know it's one thing to go up some of those you know you know for a mile or so just constantly climbing through boulders but then you got to come down um you know and every every step you can fall on your butt and um, so I think the Chugach is going to have a lot of that I think the Chugach will have from what I understand uh, quite a bit more brush in the basins kind of lower down that we might have to fight through you know with the devil's club and with the uh, alders like some of what we saw on the mountain goat hunt last year um, but I talked to Joe uh, Faulkner who guides for um, Frank Sanders who we went mountain goat hunting with last year and he was in the Chugach as soon as as soon as he dropped us off at the airport he went to the Chugach um, with a friend on a doll sheep hunt not in the exact unit but definitely in the Chugach mountains and he said Jay uh, in my opinion you will not fight brush like what we fought on the mountain goat hunt he said that's by far the, the worst um, brush we you know i've ever fought he said the chugach will have quite a bit of brush but nothing like probably what you experience on the mountain goat hunt so that that was a relief um the thing about the chugach is i think there's less sheep which is you know i only saw 19 rams um there's less sheep but there's some bigger rams so you know i think the potential of finding what i will think is a shooter or or a ram that i will want to shoot i think is probably the probability is better on the Chugach hunt than it was in the NWT. Um, but I don't, you know, like Lance says, my guide, he's like, you can, you know, you have to capitalize on every sheep um, encounter that you have, especially if it's a shooter because, you know, they they tend to be a little jumpy and, you know, if you, if you booger them, you know, they might be gone forever. So, it's going to be uh, an adventure. Um, I'm looking forward to it. And um, my first day back, I went hiking, and, man, I just didn't have it. My wife went with me, and she's like, man, you're just a lug. Uh, you know, I just, <laughs> I, I think my body just needed more, just needed more, you know, rest. And uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I felt a lot better. Um, I felt a lot better today uh, out there than I did. So, um 
I'm, I'm pumped. I'm, I'm going to tweak my food list a little bit and, um, you know, some of the different things. Uh, Temperature-wise, it will be a little cool, cooler. So, yeah, there's some things for me to uh, tinker with over the next couple weeks. So, Nice. So uh, do you have – obviously, you've been a sheep guide for, I think, mean, geez, how long, you know, but you're talking down in kind of – I mean, yeah, they're mountains, but – it's almost, uh, I guess I can't say canyon country, but it's, you know, low rock, you know, low mountains and kind of that, well, desert sheep country. So, our, uh, and I said, I don't know what was it, Jason, that, that said that, you know, uh, there's either people that are sheep hunters there's, and there's people that aren't. So, a- after this one hunt, can you can you determine whether or not you are a sheep hunter are you a passionate sheep hunter or is it is it was a trip that you're like man that was awesome i'm glad i got to do it but i probably won't do it i mean obviously you got the two guys one coming up but yeah you, i mean you think this is something it, it, that's going to be your blood twofold yeah i mean i think if i answer it to you know honestly i think there's two parts of it i think there's parts of it when you know you're hiking your balls off and literally you know you're 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 just one foot in front of the other on these rock boulder gardens and you, you know, you're literally hiked for four hours and you're still in the rocks and you're just going, what am I doing? I mean, there were, there was a bunch of times when I honestly was just like had to sit down, not from a standpoint of like so exhausted that I just couldn't go any further. It's just mentally with those rocks being so unstable up and down and you're just, you know, just going and going and going and going, and you get to another fall summit, another fall summit. I mean, there were times when I literally had to kind of just sit down and just be like, all right, let's just take some photos. Let's just enjoy this for what it is. But on the other hand, there's part of me that's like, this this actually sucks. Like, this is, this is not in anybody's, you know, I don't know how anybody could think that was fun. I yeah. think <laughs> where being, you know, knowing whether you're a sheep hunter or not is, when you can see some rams and have that fire in your belly to be like, oh, I'm going to walk through this for days and days and days and finally get my chance at a big ram, you know, unfortunately I didn't, I didn't get that carrot at the end of the, you know, string, so to speak, to like fuel that fire. Um, I think it's in there um, for me. I mean, I think it's deep down, it, it's in there. Um, but I won't lie to you and say that it was just like, oh, it, everything was great. Like, every part of it was fun. Like, I think you have to kind of adjust your mindset and your attitude if you're not used to that. Like, I'm, you know, I've grown up in the desert, and I'm a desert rat, and, you know, used to my type of desert. Um, but, you know, certainly those, you know, shale and talus and some of those slopes where it's just boulder garden just nonstop, that was definitely a mental grind so I think I'm up for it um but I I wouldn't say that I've graduated enough to be like you know to answer Jason's question to be like oh yeah I'm a sheep hunter like every year I'm going doll sheep hunting like you know let's see after this next hunt and um you know I certainly love the animal they're incredible um and you know one thing about these hunts Chris is they are pretty expensive so yeah, and whether yeah. a doll sheep hunt is in the cards for me every single year, I mean, I wouldn't tell you that they've bit me, doll sheep have bit me like coos deer have me. I mean, coos deer literally have me around their, around, you know, their finger, so to speak, 
Um, I, I just love everything about cooster hunting. And I feel like I've just dipped my toe in the water on the doll sheep. Um, and, and yes, I love it, but I don't know that I have the passion for it yet, like I do, say, for desert sheep or for cooster. Yeah, and see, that's the thing is with me, uh, it, and I think there's something to, you, you said something, sorry, I mean, I know we're, <laughs> we're, just, we're talking sheep, but um, you just said something that kind of struck a chord with me about, you know, you went through that amazing experience, and it is. I mean, there's, there's no question about it. It's an amazing experience. Unbelievable country. The pictures you, you that you posted were just freaking unreal. I mean, just it just, that country is just so big. And that's the thing. Just I, that's one thing that I will say that does attract me. However, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough. I you know, when I lived in Colorado, I drew uh, my Bighorn Ram tag, and I just uh, out of just sheer you know, I didn't expect to draw it, but I said, you know, and I didn't have real, that year, I didn't plan, you know, on drawing the, the tag. Um, I just picked a unit that was close to home, and that unit ended up being a, a, a what I would consider a, a canyon, low, rocky canyon uh, unit, so it's not your high elevation bighorn sheep type of hunt, um, and I was fortunate to to kill a, just a smoker of a ram, but I really don't have, uh, I, I, I can tell, I honestly can tell you I am not a sheep hunter. I mean, I served on the board of directors for Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society for six years. I love the animal. I love, I, I love being a part of the organization. Um, but it just, uh, there's, I really, now if I, if, if someone said, Hey, Chris, if, you know, we gave you a, a bighorn sheep tag, would you take it? Well, yeah, but I don't put in for sheep, you know, like, like some people just put in for every sheep unit and every, she, you know, every, every state and, and deserts and they're going on multiple sheep hunts and, you know, up north and, you know, I, I do like that canyon country type stuff, the, the low rock habitats for bighorn sheep. I just, there's something that I, that I, maybe it's just because I killed my first sheep there and now I have that that's the image I have in my head but um but for for going ch chasing sheep on a big mountain I just it just really doesn't really do it for me now the flip side mountain goats whole oh, I yeah I if I had the money in the time oh yeah I I would definitely go on mountain goat hunts. I, there's just something about that animal. And yeah, now you're talking about the tippy top of the mountain, you know. So there's just yeah. something about that animal. But maybe the reason why I have such a desire for mountain goats, um, my hunt, in, again, Colorado, was, this was a Mount Massive hunt. And so Mount Massive is one of the 14ers. Um, I found two, and this is in even my taxidermist that was on the hunt with me, uh, he had he drew a tag as well. Um, I found two billies that he. I mean, he's mounted. I don't know, well over a hundred goats, and I mean, he, the guy knows what he's looking at, and and he knows what he's talking about. The the size, the body size the, of the first goat I found was he goes that that's the biggest billy. He, he, that's the biggest mountain goat he's ever seen 
whether it's British Columbia, whether it's Colorado, it didn't matter. It's the biggest body goat he'd ever seen and was already, we were, you know, he was looking at it. We we're, we're sitting there looking at it the day before and he's, he's, he's already going through his mind going, I'm going to have to buy the biggest freaking form and then I'm going to have to add to it. I mean, this thing's a giant. And then the second yeah. Billy that was with him was a very large bodied Billy, just huge, massive horns. I mean, so these were two world class Billies that here that we found that I found. No one had stumbled onto these Billies, and so here we are, the day before season. There's already been a season in the unit going, and no one stumbled on them. And I've got a tag, he's got a tag, and then all of a sudden a third Billy shows up, and it's another big Billy. I mean, we were. I was, I'm like, this is going to happen. Well, we hike up the, long story short, we hike up the valley. The smallest of three uh, pops out. Greg's like, I'll shoot that one. I'm like, dude, go for it. So he, because we were told, ah, yeah, these goats will stand there and look at you. So he shoots his goat. The sound of the shots going off in the basin sent the other two goats up over the mountain, out of the unit, gone. Left the unit, gone. Yeah. So it went from I was riding on cloud nine to oh my gosh the pit of despair that I we just <laughs> all that time I ended up I ended up filling my goat tag I, it was just a, a four year old goat I mean I I mean I I filled I I shot my goat but I think there's still something there lingering that I want to fulfill but there's just something about goat so it is interesting that you know like we said you didn't get that you. You didn't get the prize at the end of the race, so to speak. Um, I think that, that I think I think that does. There is something to be said about that. You know what I mean? I think there. You know. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, you, if you get your hands on enough of them, I think my love for coos deer has grown and grown and grown so much, like elk as well. I mean, you get around yeah. some of those big mature animals, and you. You know, you hunt them and hunt them and hunt them, and they kick your butt, and then you finally have success and get one on the ground, and you get to fondle those antlers, and, you know, you get to experience that. It almost fuels fuels the fire within, and, you know, I feel like if I spend more time around doll sheep, I know that, for one, the country is awesome. It's just cool. They're neat animals. Um, you know, I think I could get where I was, you know, could be a doll sheep junkie, um, but I don't think it's fair to say that, oh, I'm a guide in the wolf, you know, doll sheep hunter only going on, you know, having gone on one yeah. hunt. So I don't well, respectfully for all those guys out there that, you know, doll sheep is their passion. I certainly wouldn't want to be one of these guys that jumps in one hunt in and, you know, one, you know, oh, I'm the expert on it. Number two, oh, I know, you know, like, you know, like there's people like Al that have been on 140 doll sheep harvest, you know, that I respect the time that he's put in and the punishment that he's put his body through. Like it, you know, there's some reverence there where, um, absolutely would I have loved to have been around more rams, been able to digiscope and, you know, phone scope more rams and, you know, look at them and really get to study them. Absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, with the Chugach coming up, I feel like I've got a second chance to, you know, get to experience them more. Um, and, and it's yet to be determined whether I'm just, you know, putting my deposit down for my hunt next year or the year after. Um, yeah. But, that's I, you know, that's I would, that's... I'd, I'd certainly like to take advantage of this next hunt. And, 
um, I would like to harvest adult sheep. Now, with that being said, I've never been one to just like have to harvest something just to shoot it, just to say that I got one. And I go on lots and lots of hunts and never kill anything. Most of the time when I do shoot something, and especially lately, like, you know, it's usually something pretty good. And, and um, you know, so that that's where I'm at on that. So, so, um, so, doll, so doll sheep was just something that you wanted, but you're not, you're not on a quest to get your slam. You know. Or are you? I just don't, I just, no, I mean, I really, w- could I see myself getting my Grand Slam someday? Yes. Do I see myself as one of these guys going, okay, I just shot a doll sheep in the NWT, which I didn't, but let's say I did, and okay, yeah, I've got this other hunt, but man, now I need to get a stone, now I need to get a rocky, like, I could see myself, hey, I might just hunt doll sheep for six or seven years, and and, you know, if the if I draw some other tags or, if you know, a hunt comes along. But I, I've never been one of these guys like, oh, okay, I've shot my, you know, Merriam's turkey, my Rio Grande, my Gould's. Like, I got to go. Like, you know, I've been many, many years. I still haven't killed an Osceola. I still haven't killed an Eastern. You know, I, I, yeah. I kind of am one of those. Once I kind of dive in and start enjoying something to hunt, you know, I, I kind of just do it over and over and over. So, um you know, I'm definitely not one of these bucket list guys. It's like I'm checking that animal off the list and I'm checking this animal off the list. Um, I look at it as more like I'm pretty happy hunting elk and coos deer and mule deer and, you know, Gould's turkey and, you know, kind of focusing on those animals. And, you know, one would argue that a lot of that is maybe because of where I live and the proximity to those animals and, you know, I'm around them and, you know, what have you. Um, and I do like adventure, but, like, you know, going to, you know, Pakistan or going to, you know, some of these far-off places and traveling for four, five, six days, and it just doesn't really intrigue me. Would I do it? Yeah, I'd probably do it if someone's like, hey, I got this great, you know, hunt for this, that, or the other. But I'm not one of these guys that, like, has to go on adventure travel just to make it exciting, you know? No, um, no, just, that- just yeah, tickled going cooster hunting every single year and hoping to never have to miss a cooster rut in January and, you know, going no, it, to different yeah, ranches, I, same ranches, you know, it's just one of those things. Or hunting turkeys, like, uh, you know, yes, I like going to new places, but I also kind of like just going where I, where I like to go. No, you and I have never talked about it. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, you and I have you and I have actually never really talked about this, so it's very interesting to see that we are similar in that way. Yeah, I still have not killed an Osceola. I, you know, would I would I like to? Sure. But is it a priority? No. I just, I really love chasing my reels. But, you know, you know, Gould's turkey hunting, you know, I, I didn't kill a Gould's when I was down there, but it was one of those things where I was like, I, oh, well, I mean, I'm guiding, so we killed how many? You know, I mean, I, I got to call yeah. in and watch die, what, 50-some birds that, that season. So, in a way, you, you kind of live vicariously through your hunters as well. But, no, I'm the same way. I just, I, someday, someday, would I, I want to go chase moose, whether it's Alaska or Yukon, I, I, I don't care. But I want one of those, I would love to go chase bull moose, in the rut, 
calling, you know, doing it Jim Shockey style, calling them right point blank and, you know, call them to your toes type of deal. And in the country you were in, I think it would be really cool, maybe, I don't know, I, it's, it's, it's a maybe, uh, you know, mountain caribou I think would be would be interesting just because I think the, the animal just is a cool-looking animal. But I'm the same way, man. Yeah. I just I love chasing my elk. I love chasing my whitetails. I love chasing my turkeys. And quite honestly, I don't care what it is. Well, you've already killed how many reels. I don't care. I don't keep track anymore. But am I going to shoot two in the face, you know, next year? Yeah, because <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, you know, it's, you, you talk about mountain caribou. That was one thing about the trip. A little bit disappointed. I really wanted to see a bull caribou, um, you know, mountain caribou in the velvet. And we saw, I think Al counted like 58 or 9 cows and calves in one group. Um, but we never saw any bulls, um, as well as I would have loved to seen a grizzly uh, far off and just kind of check them out. Um, but, you know, it was cool. I got to see my first doll sheep. I saw 19 different rams, which, you know, um, uh, it's funny. I've, I've gotten some in-reach messages from some guys that were on the second hunt after me, and they're like, you know, we've seen 35 rams in, you know, four days or something, and you know, I'm like, that's awesome. And part of me is like, that's awesome. And then part of me is like, you turds. Like, man, yeah, five yeah, rounds in four days. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, I at all not, like, jealous. But in, in yeah, one quit. way, can't wait for him to get back and just be, like, freaking rubbing it in my face. 35 rounds in four days. Twist the like, knife, yeah. yeah. Twist the knife, yeah, why don't yeah. you? Yeah. Um, you know, and they're like, well, we shot a great-looking 10-year-old. And, you know, I'm like, great, that's awesome. You know, and then I'm not at all like, oh, they got one, I didn't, da-da-da. But it's yeah. like, you guys enjoy it because, you know, I felt like I humped around pretty good and, and didn't even see one. But, you know, that's that's hunting. Um, that's the way it yeah. goes. Yeah. But um, let's dive into some of these elk questions. Uh, I put out on Instagram, my question was, uh, ask me questions about early season archery, muzzleloader, early rifle um, so I was, you know, trying to get some questions, you know, regarding around the rut, you know, with this early season that we have coming up. And granted, I don't mind answering late season questions and all that, but with the hunt that's, you know, basically a month away, Chris, I mean, we are literally um, inside, of a, 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 inside of a month, you know, Colorado season opening the last Saturday, I think, in uh, August, which is whatever it is, the 25th, 6th, 7th, something like that. 25th. Uh, it's on us again. Another year. Here we are. And, I know. Uh, so, I, you know, I love – I don't know if you've seen it, Chris, but on Instagram there's this new thing that you can say, ask me a question. And um, on my way up to the doll sheep hunt, I actually – it just came out. So I thought, oh, I'll mess around with it. I was in the airport in Edmonton, and I answered a bunch of questions. And then when I was coming back, I – I also threw it out there, and I feel like it's a great way to um, interact with, you know, the people that follow my content, listen to my podcast, and what have you. So I thought by asking the question on Instagram and then getting you on the line and you and I can answer a bunch of these questions, because I think by doing it through audio, through the podcast, we can, some of the questions dive in a little deeper than, you know, a, yeah, type in a couple sentence answer, 
Um, but it's a really neat feature that I've been enjoying, um, you know, just, just answering and helping people uh, with their questions. So let's just dive in, okay? Go for it. I want to, before I do dive in, um, if this is the first podcast episode that you've listened to of, of mine, and, and certainly, or if it's the first one you've heard Chris, um, Chris is a wildlife biologist, ecologist, studies uh, animal behavior, uh, has really focused on elk behavior, white-tailed deer behavior, turkey behavior, like we were talking about, you know, the three animals that you enjoy the most. Um, but Chris, give me the, you know, two or three sentence uh, Reader's Digest version of your ecology and wildlife um, biology background. For those listeners that aren't familiar, you have the Row Hunting Resource, uh, you know, rowhuntingresources.com. You've got the elk module, uh, which has hours and hours and hours, uh, I want to say, what is it, 50, 60 hours of videos. Yeah, I think we're, uh, I think we're right, up, right, right about 40 hours right now. 40 hours of, of videos on elk behavior, why, and you try and interpret why they're doing what they're doing, you know, when are they doing it, what's making them do it, and, and studying that. So briefly, yes. before we get into the question, to introduce yourself, um, why don't you go ahead and do that? Yeah, so as a kid, I was always, I mean, my grandfather was a game warden. He got me into hunting and fishing early on. I knew early on once I started hunting for myself, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. I wanted to work with wildlife. And so as I grew up and then jumped into college to, and we're skipping over a lot, but finishing, you know, going through my college uh, to become a wildlife biologist, um, I had the good fortune of getting on a research project, uh, the Upper Eagle River Elk Study, back in the mid-90s, mid to late-90s, early 2000s. And my job during the summers was literally to hike a bunch of gear into the backcountry, get up into these alpine basins, and sit and watch elk uh, and record behavioral interactions. Now, that specific study was looking at cow-calf interactions, but when you sit there for year after year and just sit there for hour after hour watching elk do elk things, you can't help but notice behavior, especially, and I've always been passionate about animal behavior, just something that I've really, really loved. And so you sit there and you watch all that, you know, over time, you can't help but pick stuff up. Well, when I graduated, we started our business, my wife and I, she's a wildlife biologist as well, uh, we, we wanted to work in the private sector, so we started our business, and one thing that I knew, or that we realized very quickly, is if you can incorporate behavioral considerations into whether your management plans, your habitat plans, and that type of stuff, you can be a lot more successful a lot quicker just because you're, you're, you're utilizing what the animal already wants to do or you know what the animal you know, prefers or you, you can take those behavioral considerations uh, and use them. Well, when you do the same thing from a hunting standpoint, it's night and day different as far as what your consistency in success is, but also my opinion and, and what at those people that, that enjoy what I provide through the elk module, um, it's, it can be a lot more fulfilling 
as well. If you, if you understand, if you're the type of person that, that is naturally curious, if you're the type of person that always wants to know why, you know, why am I seeing that? You know, what's going on there? If you're that type of curious person, well, then you're very much like me. And so that is the type of stuff I started sharing uh, on that elk module. Say, okay, here's, here's yeah, yeah, yes, we want to elk hunt. And yes, we want to call, we want to call them in or we want to get set up or whatever. But here's what's going on from an elk standpoint. And so that's what I really sp started spending time doing. I, not only working on the elk study way back when, but then looking what's going on in the fall, what's going on in their winter range. What are the cows doing in the spring? How they how they interacting with their calves in the spring and summer? So just you know, 365 days a year. What you know, there's 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 behavior, there's interactions, there's stuff going on, and I've just I've just become extremely passionate about elk behavior, and as much as I can share on the website, I do. But the thing that I think is is the most critical part of what um, what we do uh, on, on the website is anybody can flap their gums and tell you what to do. I mean, heck, this is what we're doing on this podcast. We're going to answer questions based on our, our professional and personal experiences and our opinions. But on the website, I really try to saturate it with a, from a video-based standpoint to where I'm actually showing you elk doing these things. So if I'm going to talk about a vocalization, I'm going to, I'm going to show you an elk doing the vocalization. But more importantly, we're going to talk about, okay, that's the vocalization, but how did that animal use it? What did it accomplish? Who responded to it? Why did they respond that way? What does that vocalization mean, or what does that behavior mean? Why are they behaving the way they are? So now you can literally sit hours upon hours, like you said, on the website and watch elk do all the things that you're going to see them do in the fall but you don't have the pressure of, of having to try to kill it or, you know, have a tag in your pocket. You sit there and watch everything unfold. That way, A, it's easy to practice to, but more importantly, when you go out in the field and you see something, now you've got a basis of going, oh, I know what I'm, I know what I'm looking at, I, or I heard this, I know what that means, and I know what the elk is going to do, and I know what the elk is going to expect, so I know how to handle myself accordingly so no it's, it's, it's been a fun endeavor I, I love it we've got a pile I mean more it's, it's crazy this year is just it I think more and more people are looking for a much more comprehensive resource from a behavior standpoint and one that is based in sound science I the other little thing that you'll hear me constantly talk about uh, throughout the website or those videos is you can never prove something to be. The only thing that you can really do from a behavioral standpoint, all you can do is really um, try to disprove it. And I think that is another thing that we are unique in. And you're not going to see a lot of spin. You're not going to see a lot of, you know, the, your traditional dogma um, style conversations. And, and you and I talked really quick about this earlier. You know, I get people sending me an email saying, hey, I got on there, I, I saw you know, I didn't see anything about the estrus call. You know, what do you think? I'm like, no, you're not. You, you know, you and I have talked about that, like, to ad nauseum, but I've got hours of videos in the in the uh, elk module to show why that's not, I mean, it, it, it doesn't exist. And, and But I have numerous videos in there that discuss why it doesn't exist. Or, you know, people say, oh, I didn't see anything about challenge views. No, you're not, because... 
They don't exist. But now when you get into the dominant bugles discussion, you're going to understand why I don't talk about challenge bugles, but you're going to understand it from a behavioral context. You're going to under, you know, understand it from, from an elk standpoint of why, no, there, there's really no such thing as, in my opinion, as a challenge bugle. There, that vocalization exists, but it's not used for that manner. But you're going to learn why, you know, from an elk standpoint. So, no, it's, it's a it's, well, and I think I it's, think a great it's resource, human nature but. too to to dive in and just want the quick answer. And I I yeah. just think that's the nature that we live in, where we have information at our fingertips so readily available that it's easy to just you know Google and get the quick answer. I think anybody that's you know, looking at, um, you know, becoming a Row Hunting Resources member and diving into the elk module for, you know, the thousands and thousands of dollars that it costs to be a member. Um, <laughs> yeah. 25 bucks. Thousands and thousands. Yeah. How much is it? Like 25 bucks or something? Yeah, um, yeah. You, you get the three months, 25 bucks. Yeah, it's, it's not, it is. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's real expensive, but I think, I think, if you want just the, you know, Google answer, Wikipedia, just like, oh, the quick, you know, two seconds, I think you'll find some of that there because you'll just stumble across it. But I think you almost have to get into it and listen to what Chris is saying to comprehend the whole picture. I well, don't think Chris offers any quick fixes or yeah, any, no. you know, get, get rich quick schemes. It's more of, we want to understand why they're doing it, there you when go. they do it, how they do it. And, you know, I, I think a lot of those terms that you, you know, people say, well, what about the challenge Google? What about the estrus? What about, you know, there's been all these terms that marketers have coined, and I'm not pointing fingers or, you know, saying that anything's been done wrong, but, but there's, they're just terms. And, yeah, Chris, and, and you may have different terms for other yeah. things and what have you, but you you know if you're going to be a row hunting resources member, you have to realize that you're going you're getting the whole picture. You're not just getting a snippet. Well, and that's the thing is, I mean, it's not that there was anything done wrong because uh, you know until we started doing what we're doing here, everything has been from a hunter standpoint. I mean, so when people talk about a challenge bugle, it's, it's because it's from a hunter's standpoint about what the hunter wants to do with that, that bugle. If you want to talk about the estrus call, the, the whole reason why the estrus call came about is because, you know, certain people saw something and, and you know, thought, well, I see this and this is happening and that one, well, it must go together. So it, it, but it, came, it became about, and I think it's, it's reached the, you know, kind of dogma stage of where it's just it's ingrained in the culture now. Because it's, it, it's, it's people talking about it from a hunter standpoint. Well, that's not what the elk module does. The, the elk module, it, it, on the row hunting resources stuff, we flip it 180. It's from an elk behavior standpoint. So that's why you're not going to, you know, exactly. You're, you're, people that come into this are the type of people that want to have that deeper understanding of, of okay, what is going on? And how do I use it? But this is, it's, it's a completely different way to frame and think about what you're doing out in the field in the fall. So, yeah, I even, you know, I, and I can, you can see it. I, I, yeah, I'm going to start sharing some more stuff. Um, well, that's a longer discussion. But anyway, there, you can tell, you can talk to anybody that has <clears throat> been on there for a long time. Even some of the most veteran elk hunters, 
go through those, even the basics. You know, you're like, well, I know what a chirp is. I know what a mew is. Or I knew, well, maybe, maybe. You, you know what it is from your standpoint, from a hunting standpoint. But do you understand it, understand what it's saying from an elk standpoint? Do you understand what a chirp and a mew is and what the differences are versus a lost mew? There's people that say, oh, I, you know, I, I want to sound like a cow. Okay, what are you doing? Oh, just chirps and mews. And then you hear them call and you're like, no, that's no. That's not a chirp and a mew. That's a lost mew. You're, you're, com- you're conveying a completely different connotation, a, a behavioral vocal connotation than what you think you are. And so even some of the most basic vocalizations, the basic things that people think they know, there might be just, it means some of these things may not be earth-shattering. They might pick up one or two things on, on a couple of them, but other stuff, no. I mean, it's going to fundamentally change how you just flat-out operate on the mountain. So it take, you, you need to go through it and just, you know, go through the behavior stuff first because that's, you know, the foundation. There's a reason why I couch things under, you know, foundation principles, and I put them in order. So you got behavior first. Understand how an elk communicates, how it moves across the landscape. Okay, got that. Now I'm going to move into vocalizations. Okay, I got that. And then recognition and then the video. You know, everybody just wants to jump right to what it's called the strategies and actions section because that's where I'm out in the field calling elk. You know, it's, it's cool. It's the fun part. But I'm telling you, there's so it's a, it's a fundamentally different way of thinking. So people, when they go into it, need to understand that when they go into this, Go in with your eyes wide open and go through every video and don't just try to hunt and pick and choose um, because there's so much more in there than that. For sure. Let's dive into a couple of these questions. Um, Chris, some of them are pretty short. Some of them, you know, I may cover and you might not even have anything to add and we'll just bang through bang through some of these questions. First sure. question is from uh, Tober. Well, it's T-O-B-E-R-S-E-C-O-N-N-Y. He asked me the question, ask us, best scent control for early archery elk hunting. My answer to that would be there's really nothing you can do to, to completely mask the human scent and that the elk is downwind, they're going to smell you. I can tell you that some of the things that I do are I put my camouflage clothing if I'm uh, hunting in Arizona and hunting from a camp, so to speak, and I'm hunting out of my truck day in and day out. I put my clothes outside of my travel trailer. I put my clothes in a Rubbermaid or Action Packer style, uh, you know, sealable type uh, case um, that I can easily get the clothes in and out of. I try and keep the clothes clean. I try to use unscented uh, 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 laundry soap. Uh, I try and when I get to camp, I try and get pine and juniper and sage and some of those different things and put them in the container with the clothes. Um, I try not to cook in my clothing. I try not to go in restaurants in my clothing. I try and change my, you know, socks twice a day, morning and night. Um, I try and try and eliminate the human, as much human smell as I can. Um, but like I said, there's nothing in my mind that you can do if an elk's downwind, they are going to smell you. Um, I would tell you if you're in the backcountry, 
you know, having an unscented deodorant could help. I could tell you that uh, washing your clothes routinely and maybe having a shirt that you hunted in yesterday, you wash it in the creek, you hang it up to dry, you put your fresh shirt on, you know, you know, doing that kind of stuff can help. And I definitely think that there's, you know, things that you can do like that um, for scent control. I definitely think you can, you know, spray elk urine on your clothing. And I think you can obviously smell like elk urine um, or other things, skunk scent. I mean, I've heard people smoke up at a campfire and get, you know, the campfire smell and they say that that helps. I've heard people say that they spray, um, I forget the brand. I want to say it was Cutter Bug Spray, and, and I've actually done it quite a bit where you just cover yourself in mosquito bug spray. And for whatever reason, when an elk kind of gets downwind, they're kind of confused. They don't really, you know, associate that smell with human smell for whatever reason. Um, but when it all comes down to it, you can't fool an elk's nose. You can do things that kind of mitigate and help. Chris, you got anything to add? Yeah, I've never heard about the bug spray one. I don't know. I don't know if I. I don't know if I like that one. It's kind of like the. Some people talk about. The I've actually spray. done it. I've actually done it, and it's cutter bug spray, and it's the spray on. And I did it for actually it a couple of years. Chris, I'm going to tell you that there were times when elk did swing downwind, and I'm going to tell you. My, I've got a few buddies that absolutely swear by it, but I'm going to tell you my, what I witnessed was that they kind of had kind of just like a confused, but not like I'm spooked. But I don't know if that, you know, there's so many variables at play. Um, yeah. But maybe they're smelling the, whatever the chemicals are that are in the bug spray and they're associating that with something that's, you know, not human, you know, not human caused or what have you. I don't know. Maybe you smell like a hiker. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, maybe, I maybe they're maybe the they're like, is. "Oh, that's just a flower picker." <laughs> I can just tell you that an elk's going to smell you most most all the time, no matter what. Yeah, there's a couple things that I do that I would add, um, and it depends on whether. Well, one, if I'm if I'm hunting out of base camp out of my truck, I will have. Um, uh, Primos makes that control freak spray. It used to be the Silver XP. It's got colloidal silver in it. I can tell you that stuff works phenomenally, as does the uh, what is it? Um, Dead Downwind. Dead Downwind spray, the, the enzyme stuff, that works pretty darn well. So you can either, either of those two, but I really like the Silver XP or the, the control freak stuff. So I, I think Hunter Specialty made some stuff that was like a scent neutralizer as well. Um, yeah, but uh, you got the, the biggest, okay, let's talk about that real quick then. You got the biggest thing is you got to make sure it's something other than just baking soda and water, and that's what a lot yeah. of them are. That's why, that's why yeah. I said the two that I said. The one with the Primos one has colloidal silver, which does actually have my, um, antimicrobial uh, properties to it. So it's got a scent neutralizer in the, the solution, but then the colloidal silver helps keep the scent down. And then on dead downwind, it's an enzyme, uh, active enzyme that breaks down bacteria over a longer period. So it's not just um, it's not just a baking soda and water. And you can tell by you, you can spray stuff, and it just and when it dries, it turns to a white powder. 
that's just baking soda and water. You can do your own with that, you know, and hydrogen peroxide yeah. or whatever you want to do. But so I will take that at, at my base camp, and I will spray my stuff down with that. Um, but if I'm in the backcountry, uh, one, chlorophyll tablets. You can get that online, just chlorophyll tablets. Start taking them about two weeks before your hunt uh, religiously. It'll turn your poop green, but it will knock down your personal body odor. They actually prescribe that for people that have chronic bad body odor. So chlorophyll tablets can knock your signature scent down just intrinsically. And then I will take those blue, you, know, you can see them like at hardware stores or, you know, whatever, but it's a, um, a heavy-duty um, paper towel, essentially like a shop towel, like just the heavy-duty cloth, the ones I get are blue, but it's a heavy-duty kind of a paper towel. I will unroll a whole pile of those, fold them up, stick them in a Ziploc bag, and then I'll pour Primos, that Silver XP, that control freak, in the bag so the, so the towels get saturated. I will, it, it weighs, it, it, there's weight there. It's, it's going to be heavy-ish for the size, but I will pack that in my backpack because at camp, I can then take that towel and use it to wipe down my body and just kind of take like a pit bath but knock some of my scent down as well. Um, merino wool. If you can wear as much merino wool on your upper body as possible, merino wool, A, does not hold uh, scent as, as well, and it will actually fight your scent. And if you do what Jay says and rinse your clothing out in the creek, It'll dry, and it'll be, I mean, you, you're right back to square one where that shirt is, is good. There's a lot of times that I can get away with a three- to five-day hunt on one shirt. So those three things right I, there, those, those few things right there is what I, I do. I will tell you, too, Chris, uh, I, I completely agree with the merino wool. Actually, on this doll sheep hunt, I wore the same shirt the whole time. And yeah. I'll, I'm going to say day eight. Day eight is where the turning point, where it's finally, where it's like, I can't believe that the shirt hasn't stunk, but it finally, you know, it's yeah. finally gotten so bad. I actually had to um, get washed up in the creek. I was making myself sick, just smelling myself. But about day eight is when that merino wool finally kind of gave way to some some smell. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, EJ. Garze, G-A-R-Z-A-I-I-I, says, any New Mexico private land archery elk recommendations? I would tell you that uh, Tom McReynolds, Black Mountain Outfitters, I've had on the podcast. I believe he's over in units 12 and 13, maybe in unit 10 some. He's got quite a bit of private land in uh, unit 12. Uh, I would tell you that Jeff Lester with Hunt Hard Outfitters, uh, he's got quite a bit of um, uh, landowner tags and some private land stuff uh, in New Mexico as well. Um, I've had both, uh, both of them on the podcast. I've had Joseph Graham, uh, Joseph Graham out of Rio Doso, New Mexico. He's got some private land stuff. Um, I'm sure there's, uh, you know, other great ones out there. Those are the three that are kind of jumping out. I'm trying to think if I'm missing anybody um, that's been on the podcast. Uh, Chris, do you have anybody? Well, I'll also add yeah. that you've got the um, 
Mescalero Indian Reservation uh, for elk would be an interesting private land option. Not giant bulls, but you know, quite a few 320, 330, 340, maybe 350 type bulls. Every once in a while they kill a 370. That's kind of over in that Rio Doso area. Uh, you've got the Zuni Reservation, which is kind of south of Grants and Gallup, New Mexico, kind of in that country. You might look into that. Um, as well as I believe there's some Navajo um, portion in New Mexico that, you know, you might consider looking into. Um, Chris, you got anything to add on the New Mexico private land stuff? Yeah, the one, uh, the only one that I know, personally know, is Lobo Outfitters, L-O-B-O. Uh, they've got a big, they've got a big property uh, outside of Chama. Um, but the, the only thing is, I would give them a call, but he usually is booked. I mean, they, 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 yeah. they run a really good outfit, but yeah, they, that would be Lobo Outfitters. Okay. Uh, another question comes in from O.L. Wyatt, and he says, bought my first point last year. What are your favorite mid-tier archery units? I'm assuming since I'm, you know, Arizona, I'm assuming that he's talking about Arizona. Um, O.L. Wyatt, if you just bought your first point, one of the things you need to understand in Arizona specifically, there has been a change in that. Up until a couple years ago, you had to have the most points in the unit that you applied for as a non-resident in order to draw that tag in the bonus point pool pass. Now they've made it where 5% of the tags go to the people with the most points and 5% of the tags for non-residents are completely random. So um, keep in mind that even though you're put in for one point and you're wanting to know mid-tier units, I, I always recommend for your first choice to pick a 9 or a 10 or a 23 or a 1 or a 3C, you know, potentially as your first choice because you can draw now with the new stipulation. Um, but to answer your question, mid-tier units, you know, if you're looking just below the top units, I'm going to say like a 7 West, a unit 8, um, you know, a 5B North, uh, a 4B, a uh, 7 East. Those are probably the top kind of mid-tier units in my mind. You know, maybe a 6A Archery, maybe a 5B South Archery. Uh, those units are kind of mid-tier. Chris, anything to add there? No, dude, dude that's your wheelhouse, brother. No, <laughs> just okay. listen to what Jay just said. <laughs> okay, um... We've got a question. Archery elk hunting only have one week for Montana, but can be any week. Which would you pick? Chris, I'll let you dive into that one. I, uh, not, well, not knowing, okay, right off the bat, I don't, I have not been following Montana. I have no idea what their weather has been. I don't know what their, I have no idea about moisture cycle, and I do not know where he's talking as far as units go. All things being equal, I guess if I just had one week, that's it, done, end of discussion, I would probably choose that time frame around the, the equinox. So maybe, you know, usually that fall equinox, that 19, 20, 21st, somewhere in that frame is when you get the fall equinox. So 
if you can time that to where you're there a few days earlier than that and a few days after that or something like that, that's probably what I would lean into. Maybe, yeah. I, I, if I had to just choose one week, that's probably what it would be. Obviously, Chris, we've talked about before on the podcast, you know, like early in the season, you can potentially maybe have a chance at a bigger bowl because they're not with cows yet. You know, but yep. you're talking about one week. You're talking about, you know, for the most quote-unquote bugling activity where someone, you know, feels like they're in the game, you know, they can hear elk bugling, you know, kind of, even if you're talking, he's talking Montana, but I mean, even if you're talking Colorado, I mean, you know, anytime from, wouldn't you say, like, year in and year out, like, from that September 20th to that, you know, September, excuse me, September 10th to that September 25th, like, those two weeks, yeah, kind of, are, are when you're going to hear bugling most of the time, you're going to have interactions, you know, you're, yeah. you know, every year the moon's different, but, you know, you get much earlier than the 10th. A lot of times it can be finicky. You can get, you know, bulls that are maybe sounding off every once in a while, but, I mean, historically that 10th through the 25th, you know, and really like that 15th through that 22nd, 23rd, I mean, that's usually pretty good bugling time frame there. Okay, uh, here's a question from uh, James Webb. That's James W E B B A T X. He says Southwestern Colorado, between the fires in '74 and the drought, should I expect a big reduction to rutting in Unit 71? Uh, Chris, you're probably more familiar with those specific units than I am. Obviously, 74 and 71, I, I assume, are going to be down in that south-central, uh, kind of southwestern, you know, Pagosa Springs, you know, from Trinidad over to Pagosa Springs, kind of that country, I would assume. Yeah. Um, the only thing I w- – go ahead. Oh, no, no. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Keep going. The only thing that I would weigh in is, the, yeah, I mean, guys, if, if you know, they just had that spring fire – which happens to be close to that Ot6 ranch where I'm the hunt manager, um, like, you know, you got to know where you're going and, you know, you don't want to show up for your week that you've taken off work and, you know, what happened? My unit's burned. So, I mean, go on, Google the spring fire, go on and Google the 416 fire, you know, figure out exactly where those places burned. And my recommendation would be stay away from those units right now um, although people say, oh, elk are already moving back in there. Well, there's a lot of activity in there. I would probably shy away from those for a while. Um, and as far as big reduction in rutting in 71, Chris, you want to tackle that? Well, yeah, I, I, I can't say that it's going to. I mean, obviously we've got, we've got some time here coming up, but for, for August, and that, you know, some areas, some, some areas are starting to see some monsoon moisture come in, but yeah, it would not surprise me if you don't see, if things continue on the same path that they've been going, it would not surprise me to see things kind of subdued, especially early, um, again, we talk about it on the website, you know, the, you know, things that actually talk, you know, cause cows to cycle um 
there's only one thing that's going to cause them to go late, and that is body condition. And yes, I mean, there it's it's been pretty poor in some places. So yeah, you, you might you might anticipate plan for subdued, plan for not a lot of vocalizations, plan to to really probably have to grind it out. But if that ends up not being the case, well, great, bonus, bully for you. But I would definitely plan that way. And if I was going to be hunting in some of those areas, that's probably the only time that I would probably say, hmm, maybe I will uh, favor the later half of the season rather than, than the front half. Unless unless you have a um, water sort, yeah, unless, you, unless you've got bulls patterned on water. Next question, uh, Brandon Moreno 10, or Brandon underscore Moreno 10 on Instagram. Uh, I think he's asking me specifically, do you apply for Arizona anymore at all? <laughs> yes, Brandon, um, I do. I think I have 16 points for elk myself uh, in the state of Arizona. Um with it being a drought year this year, I actually just did a preference point. I did not want to draw a tag in the 2018 season. I'm a bit of an antler snob. I've shot some big bulls. I've killed two bulls over 400. Um, I, I would like to chase another big bull, and I just felt like, you know, going into with the very little moisture that we had in the winter, you know, very little moisture we had in the spring. I just felt like, you know, the bulls that I would want to be chasing wherever I ended up drawing, I just felt like they're not going to be 100%. I think, they're, you know, there'll still be a few big bulls around. Uh, we've talked about that before, Chris. Um, but, yes, absolutely, I still apply in the state of Arizona, and I look forward to drawing uh, – a, a tag again one day, but I would like, with as many points as I have, I would like to draw on a maximum capacity antler growth year where, you know, there's a chance for a big bull or two in the unit that I would like to be hunting. Um, let's actually take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll get right back into the questions. Guys, I've got an awesome opportunity to tell you about. You can check out the Go Hunt Insider for free for a 30-day free trial right now. All you got to do is go to GoHunt, that's G-O-H-U-N-T dot com forward slash J Scott. Look for the blue Start Your Free 30-Day Trial button and click there. This is by far the most valuable tool a Western hunter could give themselves. Insider changes how hunts and hunting information are found. When you go in the Insider, you'll be able to check out the filtering 2.0 system. You'll also be able to check out the draw odds for each unit, for each animal, for each state. Go Hunt Insider has the best draw odds on the market as far as the most accurate. There's no one that gets as meticulous level of accuracy as Go Hunt Insider. You'll see there's complete coverage of 4,200 different profiles every unit every state, every species, every season, in-depth analysis, interactive maps, season trends, unit access, camping and lodging nearby, and historical weather. You'll also be able to see some of the additional benefits, the strategy articles on how to apply, let's say, in Arizona for elk, for antelope, for deer, 
you can go in there and see how in-depth they get. It's an unbelievable opportunity, a free 30-day trial. They also do monthly giveaways. So just by being an Insider member, you get monthly giveaways. They give over $100,000 plus per year of giveaways, gear, tags, hunts. Another unbelievable thing about the Insider is the Go Hunt gear shop. So every time you buy something, you accumulate points. In, in essence, it's giving money back to the insider. You might ask, well, how does this work with the Go Hunt Insider? How does the 30-day free trial work? You can sign up to try Insider's industry-leading hunting products free for 30 days. They do take your credit card information so that you can automatically become a member once you, your 30-day trial ends. You can cancel at any time during the 30-day free trial, and it doesn't cost you a dime. You might ask, how is this different from other resources out there? Insider provides analysis and tools for every unit, every species, and every hunt. In each state that they cover, they don't just cover the top 10 units. Their coverage is super in-depth, and you can find those hidden gem units, maybe something that the draw odds uh, are a little bit better and maybe some quality. It's slipped through the cracks, and you might find a great hunt there. Right now, Go Hunt Insider covers Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, Utah, and Wyoming. All you have to do is go to GoHunt.com forward slash J Scott and check it out now. Okay, Chris, we're going to dive into the next question. Uh, I didn't even uh, let you answer the do you apply for Arizona anymore Um I assume you apply for Arizona, but you're also guiding in Arizona uh, this year uh, down in Unit 9, are you not? Correct, yeah, yeah. So, yes, I, I'm i one of those late-to-the-party people. I've only got a handful of points. So, But, yes, I do apply, And but, yes, I'm guiding this year down in 9. And okay. yeah, and and you're you're probably right. I mean, and I I don't know if this is relevant to his question or not, but just for, from the statement you made, um, and I we don't I don't have all the information yet, so I'm just going to put this out there from what we've seen so far. But there's the the folks I'm working with um, have checked some of the game cameras, and because they 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 run a really really high quality inventory with game cameras each year, and they. I've seen some pictures of bulls that are the same bull from last year to this year. And man, some of those bulls are 20 to 30 inches off. So yeah. good, good fronts, good thirds, good mass. And, and then all of a sudden it just, it just seems like the faucet got turned off. So um, we'll see, we'll see what ends up happening. So, yeah, I mean, one thing I was actually talking to Monty um, the other day and, um, he lives in Unit 9, and he was saying that, you know, there there has been rain um, over the last couple of weeks while I was up to all sheep hunting. There was quite a bit of rain. I don't think to, enough, you know, to help the antler. I mean, the big bulls are basically done. Um, they're going to be rubbing here over the next 10 days to two weeks. But um, that the country is greening up and that, the, you know, that there are quite a few tanks with water and things are looking better so hopefully from a you know body condition standpoint elk feeling good hopefully the rut's good for you guys down there i know over at the ot six ranch in south central colorado where i'm going to be um you know it 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 has been raining over the last couple weeks it has greened up a little bit but 
you know, it's really, really dry in south central Colorado as well. So I'm not expecting, you know, maximum capacity of antler growth this year at all. So next question is uh, Joe Engelgram or Joel, J-O-E-L-I-N-G-R-A-M. Uh, does patterning bulls early season pay any dividends come early archery hunt? My answer to this from an Arizona standpoint is kind of twofold. First, if you're going to pattern bulls all summer long and you've been watching them in June and July and now you're watching them here at the beginning of August, I'm going to tell you that if you don't know, a bunch of those bulls are about to make a 15 to 20 mile move. Um, I got a question unrelated to these questions yesterday about someone asking me, I noticed the governor's tags, you know, there's been a couple bulls that have dropped lately. You know, why do you think they dropped them in, you know, third week in July when they still have growing left? I said, well, Number one, I don't think they do. Those big bulls have much growing left. Number number two is, um, I think those guys, for one, they those tags usually run till August 14th, so they're you know running up against the timeline. But the biggest thing is, they want to kill them before August 1st hits, because a lot of times once August hits, those bulls make their big 15 to 20 mile move. In the case of that bull in Unit 9, Chris, you know, that flare bull that a bunch of people had photos of for many years and then, you know, he ends up getting killed 22 miles away in Unit 7 West, the perfect example. And not to mention that bulls can move from, you know, other units into the unit, but don't, in my opinion, put a whole lot of stock into what you've seen in midsummer velvet and expect them to be there. Um, now, Chris, I would like you to talk a little bit about, you know, blasting these bulls up in high country basins in Colorado. Um, my experience with high country is you can watch those bulls there all summer long, and maybe that first, you know, couple days of the archery season, potentially you could catch some of those bulls still hanging in the high country or hanging in those pockets. But typically they are going to make a move to the rutting grounds, and so personally, I don't put a whole lot of stock in um, scouting, quote-unquote, early. I think it's super important if you want to get out and learn the country, get out and, and get in shape, um, and, you know, get out and, you know, get, get fired up about elk season, but I would say that from about the last week of August, you know, through the middle part of September, like that's when you should do your most scouting and when you should really like key in on, okay, I want to kill that bull. Here he is. Okay, let's watch him for seven days and try and get him killed. Whereas if you watch him all of June or July, he he's more than likely not going to be in the same country. Chris? I agree. Um, just a couple things. One, uh, Keep in mind or uh, pay attention to what, if you're, how do I phrase this? Age class matters. So a lot of times if we're talking about a two-and-a-half, three-and-a-half, maybe even a four-and-a-half-year-old bull, um, a lot of times those bulls will probably be in the proximity 
of those cow-calf groups. They're not going to be too far away. So a lot of times you will see them kind of linger in the area a little bit longer, and they may not make as big of a move. But if we're talking about especially those older age class bulls, those bigger bulls, those, yeah, those ones, what you see during the middle of summer is not necessarily where they're going to be uh, come, uh, come season. Now, with that being said, however, it's not always the case. Like, for instance, my, uh, my big bull that I killed oh, a few, just a couple years back, I actually found him um, up in the high country, and I killed him about... 300 yards from where I saw him in the summer. So he was, he stayed right there, but he was the biggest bull in there, and the other bulls that he was with in the summer were gone. One was on the complete opposite side of the valley, way up, and then the other one was completely gone. So, yes, I caught him in there opening weekend, but it was, a, it was one of these years where the, where the season started early, which was good. Um, kind of like this year. So, yeah, it, on years like we have this, like this year, where you know you start on the 24th, 25th, 26th, something like that, you can kind of sometimes catch them, before, at least in Colorado and some of the high country stuff, you can sometimes catch those bulls before they make that pre-rut move. Um, but do not be surprised that if you've been sitting there all July watching a, a bachelor group of bulls and you're like, oh, yeah, and you go back in there opening weekend, and then there's nothing there. I mean, don't be shocked at that. If you're patterning bulls um, and you're wanting to hunt a general area, I absolutely sit, you know, where are they bedding? Where are they coming out? Where are they feeding? Are they, you know, staying to an isolated, you know, region on the, you know, on the ridge or on the valley or on the bench or wherever they're, wherever they are, are they predictable? If so, yes. Take all those notes and keep that in mind. But also make sure you know where the cow-calf group is in that region because if you go in there opening weekend and your bulls are gone, my guess is they've already made that move and they're going to be making a move towards those cow-calf groups. So, yeah, pattern and, and you know, sit in glass and watch um, but don't be surprised if they if they pick up a move. I do like these early seasons like this uh, when it starts this early and at the end of August, simply because it allows you a little bit more free time to if you're hunting the high country to get those bulls up where they have been or near where they have been all summer. Um, but yeah, they they absolutely can pick up and move. Now, I what I would say. Um, if you can get into your unit, say, the Wednesday before opening day and get up there in glass and then you find a couple good bulls, yeah, camp on them suckers and figure out everything that you can figure out about their movement because, you're, you know, yes, they may pick up move Friday and now well, that's a bummer. But if you're there a couple days ahead of time and you find them, then absolutely pattern them because then you just chase, you you basically cut out a lot of your chasing and, and prospecting work. You've cut a lot of that out. You know where he's going to be. You know you can wait for the wind to be right. You can just let that and let those animals just stay on their cycle, stay on their regular schedule, and then slip in there and capitalize on it a lot quicker if you know exactly what they're doing. So, Yeah, and let me add to that, Chris. Um, 
stay away from them. Stay, keep away from them. Yeah. Don't even let them know you're there. Don't do anything that's going to allow them to get out of their pattern. And then, like Chris says, like, like glass them up and watch them. Where exactly do they come out of the timber into the open park? When? Exactly what time? You know, in the morning, in the evening, like where? Where is a place where you could potentially ambush them? Like, watch them very, very carefully. Like, it's very important to be in your position and watch them come out of the timber, not hike up there and get up there when, oh, yeah, they're already out in the park. Well, you've missed the most important part of where did they come from, as well as in the morning, watch exactly where they go from open to thick. Like, which tree did they walk by? Pinpoint that, mark it in your mind, like, take a photo of it, digiscope it, like, have an exact, like, by the dead pine, you know, or, you know, by the three quakey aspens that are next to the spruce tree, and have, you know, and, oh, the next day they did the same thing. Well, boom, now you've got a pattern, so it's important to look at those details. Yeah, and uh, one thing, Chris, I, go ahead, let me just add this though, and the other thing too is, and I don't. If you talk, if if folks are thinking about about patterning with game cameras, game cameras are getting a lot more popular. And I and this is this just came up with a guy that hunts in one of the spots that I hunt. Um, if you're running game cameras, you need to be very very careful. Two things: one, yeah, if you're running game cameras all summer. Yeah, the activity you see in there in June, July, and early August may not be what you end up seeing in September. Repeatedly, I always hear people say, oh, I had awesome pictures, 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 and then all of a sudden in August I didn't get another picture. Well, yeah, because they, they made that move. But the other thing that we're start, I'm seeing, I mean, this started back in two, early 2000s, but it seems to be more now. Everybody's so excited to see what's on their game camera, they're going in multiple times throughout the summer to go get their card and go check their camera. Well, if, it, if it's you and, and somebody else and another guy and two other guys, the more disturbance you start putting into some of these sanctuary areas where the bulls are hanging out now, you're going to bump them. The more disturbance you put in there, the more likelihood you are going to cause them to move earlier. So... You really should, I, in my opinion, really, really resist the urge to go in repeatedly and in, into these sanctuary areas, you know, during the summer and disturb it, checking your camera. I think a lot of people are actually hurting themselves more than they're actually helping. Good stuff. Next question is Joey.BlueWater. Pre-rut, warm weather midday, do you think elk prefer to take cover in thick pines or quaking aspen? Chris, I'll defer to you. I'll take thick pines almost every time other than the fact that when you say quaking aspens, I need to know more about what kind of stand it is because some of the, some of the stands of aspen are pretty open. Um, but then there are some regeneration areas after the beetle kill and some, you know, fire or whatever with that are just so thick that, oh, yeah, the elk will bury into that thick, nasty, and, and you just, it's just aspen shoots, grass, and blowdowns. Um, 
yeah, they can get into that stuff and hole up into it. But if it's if we're talking about mature open as or open aspens versus dark dark timber pines, dark timber pines. Yeah, I'm with you as well. More shade, more cover, more shade. Uh, AZ Outdoorsman 1997. What exactly pushes a cow into estrus? Question mark. Chris, did you just smile? <laughs> Colder weather. <laughs> How did you know that? <laughs> Colder weather? Question mark. Full moon? Question mark. Both? Question mark. This year's hunt None in Arizona above. will will be a full moon. And and at AZ Outdoors in 1997. I'm not poking funny or question. I'm just knowing Chris. I just know Chris pretty well, and I know that he was uh, smiling when this question came up. So what exactly pushes a cow into estrus? Colder weather, full moon, both. None of the above. Chris needs, Chris needs a – the answer is E, <laughs> none of the above. Go ahead, Chris. No, there, I, I, I'm laughing. Jay knows this. I'm laughing because on the elk module, there's like, that was eight-part series about that question specifically. It's called Rethinking the Rut. What actually causes a cow to cycle? I'm not gonna give. I'm not gonna give you all the, the juicy tidbits, but um, no, the, the fall equinox, the fall equinox, the the, the photo period, um, the change in photo period is what triggers uh, cow elk hormones cycling. All 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 hormone cycling. Um, so, but it by and large, the number one number one trigger is going to be fall equinox, and then number two. I will give you probably the next level is going to be body condition of the cow. Moon, you're going to see moon phase. There's a whole discussion on that in the website too. Uh, moon phase generally just changes, or well, you'll you'll see uh, you'll see you can you can see a change in intensity level and time timing of activity around moon phase. Colder weather. You can see a change in intensity of activity and timing of activity. Uh, so those things can affect what you see out there. But from a cow cycling, photo period and body condition. And then like four or five other little things. <laughs> whether there's a bull, you know, whether she's got a bull near her and she's been with that bull for a while, that'll affect it. Whether or not uh, she's syn synchronized with the other cows that she's been with can affect it. Whether she has a cow or a calf at her side, or if she lost her calf, that can affect it. But the the two biggest ones are body condition and that fall equinox. Yeah, and and to AZ Outdoors in 1997's question, I know it's questions about what pushes a cow into estrus, cold weather, full moon, both. I think what he's also alluding to is the fact that a lot of people say, "Oh, it's." cooler weather so we're going to hear more bugling we're going to have more action well that yeah. may be true and then yeah. oh there's a full moon so at night we hear more bugling we hear that may be true but we've talked about before on this podcast that isn't a cow in estrus that's there you go bull elk you feeling go. good and, and and bugling more yep. um, but a lot of yeah. people attribute estrus and oh the cows must be going crazy because it's you know, it's cold out and it's a full moon, and the reality is, where is that photo period at? Just because you're hearing bugling doesn't mean at all that even a cow's in estrus. Um, let's let's go to the next one. Joey Blue Water again. 
early season archery, do you expect bulls, single or groups, to be higher than cows or similar elevations? Or lower. All of the above. Do you expect the bulls to be higher or lower in general than cows? Uh, or, or similar. Or, similar. Yeah, they can, they can be all of the above. They're, the bulls are going to, and again, we're talking about age class. Age class is going to be key here because if you have a younger age class bull, he's going to be shadowing those. He's either going to be in with the cows or he's going to be shadowing those cows, and so he's going to be near near those cows somewhere. But if you're talking about older age class bulls, then all of the above. They, they could be anywhere. They're, they're going to go where they find sanctuary and where they find the best forage. You're going to find some big bulls right on tippy top of the alpine. And then you're going to find other places where there's bulls, big bulls that are down low. I know some places that the bulls, the, the elk rut up above about timberline, but the bulls literally spend all summer down behind the highway in golf courses and behind the residential subdivision because it's shady, it's cool, there's good grass, and they feel safe there. So it, it really depends on your area, and it depends on the age class of bull that we're talking about. Younger age class bulls, absolutely, they're going to be somewhere near those cow-calf groups. Okay, Joey Bluewater, Joey.Bluewater, another question. When is it too early, in quotes, to try locating bugles last week of August, question mark? You jumping on that one or what? <laughs> well, I, I, I would say in Colorado, in Utah, in Idaho, you know, in some of the high country areas, it seems as though you hear guys talking about bulls bugling, um, you know, the 15th, 20th, you know, of August that they hear bulls bugling at last light, at first light. Um, so to say, you know, Joey asking the question last week of August, question mark, uh, I don't think it's too early at all to try locating bugles the last week of August. I think that's very customary. Um, now, I will add that if you're not a good bugler, the last thing I would want to do is be up there bugling like crazy in your high country basin just to get them to bugle. Chris has talked about before, like, if you can see them, and you know they're there, like, you don't want them out just cranking away because you don't want other hunters getting on them. But I, I, you know, to answer his question, I mean, I think it's, you know, last week of August up in the high country of Colorado, heck, yeah, I'd, I'd be out there, you know, throwing out locating bugles trying to, you know, get a bull to answer. Chris? Yeah, I, I always carry the bugle with me. And, and no, I mean, I... I never, I never talk about them as a, as a locating bugle. Uh, you know, I, I talk about contact bugles, and the reason why elk are using them at that time of, of year or giving them that time of year, there's, there's a variety of reasons, but by and large, yeah, there absolutely could be bulls either bugling or responding to what he dubs as a locating you know type bugle, um, but there's all sorts. Uh, there's all a lot of other bull vocalizations as well that are absolutely deadly early on. But if you just want to go and prospect, 
and you want to listen, you absolutely, let, you know, opening day of Colorado season, I will have my bugle around my neck, and I will probably, at some point during the day, you know, either morning, either that morning or either that evening or maybe the next day or whatever, I will, I will do a level, what I kind of term a level one contact bugle, just start high, go low. You know, you can hear bulls do that year-round, really, but no, end of August is not too early at all. Okay, the next question, the long claw, the long claw, says, when do bulls start to join the cows, question mark? Do bulls move to them or vice versa, question mark? Chris. Yes, bulls move to the cows generally, uh, and then it just depends on the, the bull. It, again, I've talked about it a couple times now, age class is going to make a big difference on when we're talking about moving, but if we're talking older age class bulls, um, usually it's right about when they start going hard antler, when they start feeling like, okay, things are happening, they'll make that move. Now, I've seen in some places where some of these bulls are actually, some of these older age class bulls are actually making a move earlier. Um, I think they're just wanting to get a jump on everybody else, especially if you're in an area that there's competition. I've seen some places where they've actually made that move a little earlier and got in with the cows a little early. Um, but typically, it's when they start going hard horn, when they start rubbing that velvet, it, it, it's on. Now now they start tracking down where those cow-calf groups are and they start making those moves. So, does that answer it? Yep, I'm with you there. Next question is uh, Nick, N-I-K-P-R-A-N-T-S-E-V-I-C-H. Which muzzy broadhead you prefer and why? Thanks. I've actually shot the muzzy phantom which is a two-bladed broadhead, and it actually has a bleeder blade, and I shot uh, those muzzy phantoms get incredible penetration. A lot of times you don't get a big blood trail, um, but they do penetrate awesome. I don't use the bleeder blade. I haven't used any other muzzy broadhead, so that's really the only one I've used. Um, I don't even know if they still make them anymore, but at, at one time it was they flew pretty good and um, they penetrated really well. Chris, have you used any of the muzzy broadheads? No. Okay. No experience. With uh, next question actually is from Kramer Hunts, uh, my friend Phil Kramer, Kramer Hunts with a C. Best tactic for silent bulls in a thick area so i'm assuming he's talking about kind of early archery season um you know hunting a thick area but the bulls are quiet chris what's your best tactic uh did sorry did what time is what time of the year early he said well well yeah my my question was early season uh archery uh muzzy and early rifle season so i'm assuming he's talking you know rutting you know, rutting time frame, you know, bugling season time frame, but thick areas, quiet bulls. I end up using a lot more subtle vocalizations in that case. Um, you can use, there's all sorts of bull, I mean, from whines and moans and that type of stuff to huffs. I mean, you, there's a lot of the subtle bull vocalizations that you can use that just, 
that are not a bugle and not not trying to overpower anything. But the biggest the biggest one is playing the wind, getting in close, and then very purposeful limited call. You know, I talk about um, we've talked about the you know I use the targeted strategy quite a bit where you know you start the vocals you know you basically make contact with the lost mute and then transition to that assembly mute. In those situations, that can be deadly. If if the bulls are responsive, are, are interested in cows, that can be absolutely dynamite uh, to use in those situations. Just just really tone it back as far as your intensity and and frequency of, of calling. And a lot of times, it's best even just to start off with maybe using a lost cast mute, just a high pitched cast sound, just so. Uh, it's plausible that a cast, you know, if, if everybody's hunkered down and staying quiet, most adults know there's a reason for that, so they all will keep their mouths shut. And so if you come in there and start sounding like a mature cow and start ripping and roaring or, a, or a, another bull bugling or whatever, it just sounds unnatural. However, kids, and this is what I talked about last year at the or this previous year at the ISE show, you know, kids, young calves, they don't know any of that. You know, they will take cues from the adults, but sometimes kids are kids and calves are calves and they want to go play and, and all of a sudden somebody starts yapping. You know, so it makes sense that one of the calves is going to pipe up. So maybe start that way and then just go to assembly muse and maybe some wine, but just, I mean, low-key stuff to start. And I would, I would really stress the get in tight get in tight so that the animals don't have to move very far. And then, again, the other one would probably be, if you can do it with the wind, don't overlook those midday hunts because sometimes they get in the middle of part of the day, they get restless, they want to stretch their legs, let them get in close, let them get, get, let them get up 10, 11 o'clock or whatever. They can be oftentimes a little bit more curious and, and mobile um, at that time too, so... I'm going to add for Phil, um, tactic for silent bulls in a thick area. I would ask, can you glass it? Like, can you get up high and can you see into where the elk are so they're quiet? So, you know, sneaking around and getting on them, you might end up spooking them. Um, if they're silent and you've got the whole archery season and you're, you know, on a particular bull, I might try and get up high and just watch them, see what they're going to do. I might not even go after them that day or the next day. I might actually let things kind of, you know, settle down if they're silent because they've gotten pressure or they're silent just because nothing's going on. I might try and observe, try and see what they're doing before I go diving in there. If I do go diving in there, I'm going to go quietly. I'm going to be extra quiet. I'm going to be listening more than maybe I would if they were blowing and going. Uh, I'm going to be probably moving slower, more methodical. I'm going to be trying to glass out in front of me. I'm going to be trying to just one step at a time in it, you know, trying to observe, trying to listen, trying to pick up, you know, the sound of, you know, elk raking its antlers quietly or, um, you know, maybe cow and calf, you know, just little subtle sounds, maybe bull glunking. Um, you know, if, if the woods are quiet, I'm certainly probably going to be a more subtle, like Chris says, toned it back. Um, and then the other train of thought is if you've got silent bulls, if, like Chris says, if you can get in close enough to where they are, 
So if you're going in slow, you're observing, you know, their tracks, you know, you can see you're on fresh tracks, you can smell them, you know you're close. Like I might try and get the wind right and just kind of make a little bit of a stand um, and do some light calling and just see if something will get up out of its bed and come to you. Um, but, you know, sometimes if you're trying to kill a certain bull, those are days maybe when you just don't go trouncing around. Maybe you back off. Maybe you get up high. Maybe you go sit a water. That'd be another thing. If they're silent, maybe, and you're, you know, you're not trying, nobody else is around and you're not trying to pressure a bull, maybe go sit the closest wallow or water where, you know, maybe they just happen to get up and come to you. Um, the last thing you want to do is go blow them out. Okay, Chris. Let's see here. Let's actually take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors. Guys, I want to thank Kuyu.com. That's K-U-I-U.com for their sponsorship of this podcast. And Kuyu Ultralight Hunting makes the best ultralight hunting products on the market today. From items like the Peloton 240 Full Zip Hoodie, the Chugach NX Rain Jacket, and the Super Down Ultra Jacket, which will be going on my hunts to the Northwest Territories here soon. If you're talking about Kuyu pants, some of the pants that I like are the Guide Pant. That's for colder weather hunts, like down in January on my Coos Deer hunts. You've got the Tiburon Pant for the warm season hunts. That's got the Air Dock technology where it breathes really well. You've got the Attack Pant, which is probably their number one selling pant. You've got their new Pro Pant, which is their all-season, all-terrain hunting pant with a new quiet ultra suede foam line knee pad. It has four-way stretch. It only weighs 19.6 ounces. It's got the Torre DWR water repellency. It's got the Torre Make Spec for odor control. Kuyu's rain gear is the best on the market in my opinion. I routinely wear the Chugach NX rain pant and rain jacket. Uh, I also have worn on some of the lower 48 hunts the Ultra NX rain pant and jacket. Some of the other pieces you've got to check out or are the Peloton, which is their synthetic version, either the 130 zip-off bottoms or the 200 zip-off bottoms. They also make them in a 145 merino wool or a 210 zip-off bottom merino wool. These are so convenient. You can leave your boots on, you just drop your pants, unzip your long underwear, and you're off and running again. Another amazing product are the Tiburon shorts. If you see any of the pictures of me in the summer on my Instagram account, 99.9% of the summer I'm wearing Tiburon shorts on all my hiking, all my fishing excursions. It's got the Air, Air Dot technology. Uh, they breathe really well. They're very well fitted, and uh, you guys should check them out. The Tiburon short, fantastic product from Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Kuyu has an amazing selection of products from jackets and vests, pants and shorts, shirts and tops, footwear, accessories, lifestyle apparel. They have a wide range of packs from the Icon Pro to the Ultra, the sleep system, the Kuyu sleeping bag I use on all my hunts, and then the, the tents, the Mountain Star two-person tent, the Storm Star tent, just phenomenal gear. Make sure to go to Kuyu, that's K-U-I-U.com, and check out all of the phenomenal gear that they provide. I want to thank TheOutdoorsmans.com for their sponsorship of my podcast. I want to let you guys know they are the optics authority. And if you're looking for any binoculars, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, make sure to get a hold of the guys at The Outdoorsmans. If you use the J. Scott promo code, 
you get a 10% discount on all Outdoorsman's products. Go to Outdoorsman's.com or you can call them at 1-800-291-8065. Okay, the next question is from P-O-U-R-O-N-E-M-O-R-E. Some of these names are... <laughs> I don't even know how to pronounce them. I'll just spell them. Um, I know. I, I just got my street. It's just Chris Rowe. There, there, there it is. It's either Chris Rowe yeah. or Rowe Street, or just make it easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, first elk hunt this year. I'd be ecstatic with any elk. Should I go for the opener or wait till later? You pitching that to me first? Yep. Uh, fastball right down the middle. Yeah, I will. I always, always advocate <clears throat> go early. Don't. I, and, well, here's here's why. I hear if if he's okay. If if he's if he has to take a, a you know a certain block of time off and he has to schedule that. And that's it. I mean, he's got one week done, end of discussion, they're, they're, that's it. Or, you know, he's coming from out of state and making one push, and that's it. Okay. Yeah, now, any elk. He's saying, elk. he's saying cow or bull. Any elk. Any elk. God, it's it's hard because I don't know where, he's, where he wants to hunt and what, you, you know. Um, if he's restricted time-wise, then I would probably say, Kind of that week before the fall equinox. Again, like what we were talking about, that, you know, somewhere around the middle of September because you can find bulls, you can find cows that are probably starting to cycle a little bit. So, they're, you know, you've got bulls that are getting a little ruddy. you got bulls that are talking. you got bulls that are responding to calls. you got cows. I mean, you've got a little bit more likelihood of activity in the middle of the season. However, the trade-off is, is some of those animals are going to be Locked down with cows, and so it can be difficult. Uh, if he's talking any elk, then probably that's what I would say: is you shoot for some time in that that mid-September time time frame, and you're probably probably going to be good. But if but if he's local enough to where he can hunt multiple weekends, dude, go go opening weekend. Don't restrict yourself. You know, artificially, I hear, you know, there's guys that do this every year in Colorado. They're like, oh, no, I don't even go hunt until, you know, I, I, you know that, you know, after muzzleloader season. Well, you just sat on the couch for three weeks of your season. You know? Yeah. Why? I killed my bull. We killed our, you know, look at the bulls we killed last year. Uh, you know, we killed that giant bull last year opening or the fourth day of season. I killed mine, like, on the 11th of September, I think. Um, I've killed most of all of my elk in the first week of season. I think, I think I've killed, I'm trying to count, I've killed maybe three in the second half of season, maybe? Everything has been within the first week, if not ten days of season, pretty much. So I, would, I always advocate I would, early. Yeah. I know you always advocate early. I would say that if this guy is, um, you know, first elk hunt, you know, he's never been on an elk hunt. If he's, 
if, if he's talking Arizona, in my opinion, this year, because of the drought, I would probably pick the second week over the first week. That would be my choice. His first elk hunt, well, obviously he's saying any elk, so it's probably not an Arizona tag because you'd yeah. have to have a bull or a cow. So he's probably a Colorado hunter, I would say. Yeah. So I'm kind of with you. Like I could see how someone on the first elk hunt going early, potentially maybe not hearing much bugling. You know, everybody's fired up. Usually everyone's there opening weekend. I mean, I think going around that, you know, 10th of September, you know, go when you might be hearing some more bugling would be my suggestion. Um, but but I yeah. know what you're saying. Next yeah, question and, is, go ahead. No, the only thing I was going to add is too is because the other thing too is hunter pressure is going to adjust. You know, you're going to have some effects on that too. So the other thing for him to consider, you know, I said that middle part of September, maybe maybe that week before muzzleloader, if you if he if he's Colorado. Um, that week before muzzleloader season, you'll just have a fewer people in the woods. But, you know, if it's just any elk in his first elk hunt, go when there's probably going to be some bugling and there's probably going to be animals cruising the landscape really eager to come to a cow call or, you know. Yeah. Next question from K.W. Scott, and it's K.W.S.C. Instead of O, it's actually zero, T.T., he says, my dad drew a Unit 9 early rifle bull tag this year. What kind of bulls would you be passing on? Okay, well, he's asking me what kind of bulls would I be passing on. Is he, is he asking me if I was the hunter, what I would be passing on, or if I was, you know, their guide, what would I be passing on? So I will answer the question, and I have stated my opinion several times and I've gotten some flack for it this year already from some guys, but I'm going to say it again. In my opinion, on the early rifle elk hunt in Unit 9 after a two-week archery season this year, in my opinion, if you can kill a 350-plus bull on the early rifle tag, you are doing fantastic. Oh, good. If you, yeah, you see a 350 I, bull this year, put him on the ground. Yeah, I would not, if I was guiding KW Scott, I would not recommend your dad pass up a 350 bull under any circumstances unless he has killed bulls, you know, 370, 380, 390. And he's one of these guys like, you know, if I see a big bull, I'll shoot it. If not, I'm willing to go the whole hunt and not kill. That would be probably how I would do it if it was my tag is, you know, I would be going after a big bull. And if I didn't find a big giant bull, I wouldn't shoot. I think people need to understand how drought-ridden the bulls are going to be this year, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I've been saying it ever since the spring. I've caught some flack. Oh, you're a pessimist. Oh, no, I've just I've done this for 21 years. Like I've seen Arizona in a drought year. I've seen Unit Nine in a drought year. On a good year, you see a 350 bull just about every day. On a drought year, you could go the whole season and not see one over 350. So um, my suggestion would be to do a lot of scouting, figure out what the inventory and how the antler growth is in Unit 9, 
or you can listen to the J. Scott podcast. I'm going to be doing some <laughs> during during the season, kind of early September, during the archery season, talking to Chris Rowe, talking to Steve Chavel, talking to some people, and saying, what are you seeing out there? And then I would take that into account. And then first, and then always, you know, does your dad, is he even a hunter? Is he just wanting to go and hear elk bugle and he's going to think it's an awesome experience and he's going to be happy with a 320 bull? I think people that are not avid hunters can ruin their experience by saying, well, Jay says don't, you know, don't shoot unless it's 350. Hear me correctly. If it's 350, in my opinion, you need to be hammer down shooting. If your dad is one of those that's never shot an elk, he may have a great time killing a 305-inch bull and think it's the greatest time he's ever had. So you've got to keep in mind that it's your dad's tag, not your tag, KW, and keep always keep that in mind. When you know, I, I had someone earlier said, hey, uh, my wife drew a great archery tag in Utah, da-da-da-da-da. I'm like, hey, man, it, remember, it's her tag, not yours. Yeah, I think if I remember right, she was pregnant too, and I'm like, don't don't drive her into the ground. Like it's not your tag; it's hers. Make sure she enjoys it. Chris, um, anything to add there? No, I mean, yeah, you know, like I said already, already this year that the, they're they're subdued. I mean, their antler growth is much subdued. So I mean, yeah, you see a three thirty bull that's a, a mature age class three thirty bull. He was probably a three fifty plus bull last year you know what i mean so or could have been if he had the good growth this year so that's the thing is you, you look at age class of that bull is it a mature bull and like you said yeah if his dad just wants a real a nice mature good looking bull goodness gracious this year all of a sudden 340 bull starts going yeah maybe anchor him you know what i mean because he was a probably he could he was probably a, he should have been a 360 bull or better you know so it's up to him. I mean, that's what I think communication on his tag, what does he want, what is what experience, you know, that's the thing is the hunter. And what does the hunter want? What does the experience does the hunter want? If he sees a good-looking 330 bull, I mean, we see this all the time in Unit 9 and everywhere else. People come into the unit like, I want 380 or better, and then first 320 bull walks in and whack, you know, <laughs> okay? Yeah. But, because it's the best-looking bull that they've ever seen. Okay, well, it's up to the hunter. But, yeah, they're, they're right. definitely off this year. One thing I will say, too, and I'll make a bet with the listeners out there, I'll say that there will not be more than three bulls, so three bulls over 350 killed on the early rifle hunt in Unit 9. Anyone that wants to take me up on it, the, the bet is lunch. And they have to be legitimate, over 350, like, look at a photo, like, not my uncle scored it, and it's, you know, 379, like, legitimate. I don't believe there'll be three bulls over 350 killed in Unit 9 on the early rifle hunt. I'll bet anybody, we can bet lunch on it, and if I'm right, I should have a slew of lunches. If I'm wrong, I'll, I guess I'll have to pay out a bunch of lunches. <laughs> um, Joey... Ween, W-I-E-M, just trying to kill any bull, more cow calls or young bugles, OTC Colorado Archery, September 1st through September 9th. 
just trying to kill any bull, more cow calls, question mark, or young bugles, question mark, first nine days of September. Chris? Not even a question. More cow calls. If, if he cow calls correctly, if, if he if you cow call the way I do, not that's not even a that's not even a no nah. cow call killable. Yep, I'm hundred percent agreement. Cow calls uh, first nine days of the or, or first nine days of September. If you're a halfway decent cow caller, you should be able to have a, get a shot at any bull for sure. Yeah, not that, uh, not that Danny, bugling's not going to work, but just uh, that's what I would do. I mean, no. Yeah. Danny Ender. It's uh, Danny.E-E-N-D-E-R. Would you rather hunt yourself Unit 23 Archery Rut or Early Rifle? So he's talking 23. He didn't specify whether it's north or south. Danny, I would personally rather hunt archery either 23 north or south for the sole fact that you would have two weeks to hunt rather than seven days on the early rifle hunt. One of the things that I like about the archery hunt, you get the 14 days, you get first crack at the bulls, uh, and the bulls typically are not as broken up as they are in Unit 23 by the early rifle hunt. Uh, those early rifle hunts can be phenomenal bugling, but a lot of times you're dealing with broken antlers. So my answer is archery hunt. Chris, your answer? Same. Nothing to add. Okay. Next question is Sean underscore Kowalski, K-O-W-A-L-S-K-I-95. A-Z early 6A archery. Rutting activity early in the hunt, later in the hunt, or sporadic? Sean, I'm betting that there's going to be more activity later in the hunt than earlier in the hunt. Um, I think this year being a drought year, uh, I just think that last week is going to be more bugling, more activity than the first week. Chris? Ditto. Nothing else to add. Okay. <laughs> Okay, um, here's a question that, oh, we're at our last question, and actually, unfortunately, I can't answer this question. It's Outlaw Keith James, best bullet and powder match for your setup. I'm assuming that he's talking muzzleloader, and I know literally virtually nothing about muzzleloader muzzleloader hunting i have guided a few muzzleloader hunters um chris i don't know if you want to take a stab at it but it's just out of my area of expertise uh, as to you know giving them the best combination of bullet and powder match yeah no and I, and unfortunately i really don't think that i could even if i did only because i know so many of those my if if this is muzzleloader it depends on what rifle you have. Some, some like. I mean, it just depends on what your, what your gun likes. You know what I mean? Your, what your muzzleloader likes. You're going to have to play. I, I think. Yeah. And this is from my uncle who used to shoot competitively muzzleloader. Um, he always would play with different stuff. It's just kind of like with turkey loads. You know, people ask, "What's the best turkey load?" Well, well, turkey load and choke combination. Well. 
that can be, it depends on what you got, you know. So I think he's just going to have to play with it. Yeah. Um, but that's not my expertise covered, either. We've covered a lot of ground. We've answered a lot of questions. I want to remind the listeners, GoHunt.com Insider is my title sponsor. They've actually been with me about from episode number five, and I think we're at like 400 and what are we at, 460 or something? For, I'd have to even look. We're at a bunch of episodes, so they've been with me a long time. If you're curious about the Go Hunt Insider, right now they are offering a free 30-day trial. So you can go to gohunt.com forward slash jscott. Follow that uh, URL, and you can get the free trial. So you can go on for 30 days. You can... Go on there. You can be just like you're an insider member. You can look at all the different states. You can look at all the draw odds, the harvest statistics. You can read the strategy articles. And I think it's important. It's a free trial. It costs you nothing to go check it out. Uh, I get uh, emails, get direct messages all the time from people saying that, you know, they tried out this 30-day free trial and they've been members now. I don't know how much longer they're going to do this 30-day free trial. So, guys, if you're not a GoHunt member, go check it out. It's GoHunt.com forward slash jscott, and that will get you to the 30-day trial window. Go check it out. Chris, I want to thank you for your time, as always. I know the listeners enjoy having you on. I know the listeners enjoy listening to you um, and I want to give you a chance to let the listeners know where they can find you at Row Hunting Resources and how they can sign up for a Row Hunting Resources membership. Um, and, uh, yeah, just thanks for coming on and sharing all your time with us. Oh, always. I enjoy it. I, I, I do. Uh, you know, people can find me pretty much anywhere on social media or the website, just Row Hunting Resources, R-O-E, hunting resources so instagram and facebook are the ones i'm on most often um twitter not so much but uh and then youtube same thing got a bunch of videos on youtube so but just rowhuntingresources.com and then you can click on the sign up you know for for the elk module and that type of stuff but people need to remember too if they type in that j scott podcast at the end when you go through to sign up it'll ask for a little promo code um, type in the J. Scott podcast. It'll take 20% off. So, it's, I mean, it, it is stupidly cheap. You can get it for like 20 bucks or something like that for a three-month deal. So it's worth it. It sure is worth it. Chris, thank you for your expertise. Thank you for your time. Um, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing all your exciting stuff this fall. And um, you took a kid out last year on his first hunt and he killed a 355 bull i can't wait to see what you do this year um well he's maybe i need to coming, i need to get you to take me out and shoot a 355 bull <laughs> well he's coming back out so the funny part is gonna it's gonna be an interesting uh it's gonna be an interesting test to see how he handles this year whether he comes into it thinking it's gonna be the same or or what i i, I don't oh think yeah he so. thinks it's easy yeah, I, I, Abe's a, I mean, he's he's a good kid. He's probably, I mean, I'm not joking you. He's probably one of the, the best hunters, even though he's, I think, 15, 16. He's one of the best hunters I've ever hunted with. 
So he's, he's got a good head on his shoulders, but it, it's going to be an interesting year to see. If that little sucker, if we go out there and he pulls off another 350 bull, that's done. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's going to have a tar- he's gonna have a target on his back if he goes and gets another Oh, yeah. There's some, there's some OTC Colorado hunters going to have a bone to pick with him. Oh, sure. man. Exactly. Exactly. So we'll see. Right up. Right on, buddy. Well, thanks for your time. I'll catch you later, okay? God bless. All right, brother. Good to have you back. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to follow you and see how your next sheep hunt goes. Yeah, hopefully we can find a big ram, so I'm looking forward to it. Right on, brother. Talk to you soon. Take care.